0: Welcome to Talks at GS, where leading thinkers share insights and ideas shaping the world. This session of Talks at GS was recorded before a live audience.
1: Welcome to Talks at GS. I'm Asahi Pompei. I'm the global head of corporate engagement, And I serve as president of the Goldman Sachs Foundation. I am honored today to be joined by Brigadier General Jeannie Levitt. She is commander of Air Force Recruiting Services. She joined the Air Force in 1992, and in 1993, she became the first female fighter pilot. Brigadier General Levitt. Thank you. You were born in St. Louis. Your father was in the Air Force. You graduated high school in 1985. 1986, Top Gun comes out. Uh, As we know, Top Gun was about naval fighter pilots, but portrayed a male-dominated fighter pilot culture. Tell us about that decision in college when you say, I want to join the Air Force and pursue a career in the Air Force.
0: Even though my dad had served in the Missouri Air National Guard, it was before I was born. So I wasn't that familiar other than I loved airplanes. I loved flying, watching airplanes, because I never got to fly till I was older. And when I went to college, I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I had a couple uncles who were engineers. I loved math and science, and so they said you need to be engineers, or need to be an engineer. I really didn't understand what that meant. I said, well, what do engineers do? And they said, well, they solve problems. And I go, well, how is that a job? (laughs) Not totally (laughs) sure, but I was like, okay, if it means I get to take a lot of math and science, I'll do that. So I went down to the University of Texas and I was studying aerospace engineering. And it wasn't until I crossed paths with a lieutenant that was awaiting pilot training. Uh, I was working at NASA Johnson Space Center as part of a work study program. And I ran across a lieutenant and I was not that familiar and I started asking a whole bunch of questions about, so the Air Force trained you to be a pilot, really? And uh, next thing you know, I get back on campus at UT and walked into the ROTC office and I said, I wanna be a pilot in the Air Force.
1: You were telling me that you didn't fly
0: until you were 18 years old. Tell us more about that. So growing up, I was fascinated with flying. I loved watching airplanes, but my mother was terrified of flying. And so as a result, we never flew in airplanes. We went on trips across country, but it was always by train or bus or a family van. And it wasn't until I had graduated from high school that she put me on a plane by myself uh, to go visit my uncle in Albuquerque, New Mexico.
1: So that was your first flight, St. Louis to Albuquerque. That's correct. So you joined the Air Force in 1992, 1993, Les Aspen, then Secretary of Defense, drops the restriction on women flying in in combat. Take us back to that moment. Where were you? What was the reaction of your fellow service women?
0: I have to back it up a few months because that was in April 1993 that the Department of Defense changed their policy. I graduated pilot training in January of 1993. And at that time, the law had changed that allowed women in combat, but DOD policy had not. Right. So I was kinda in the gray zone, uh, but I finished first in my class, and you picked based on, it was merit-based. So I stood up and I said, I want the F-15E Strike Eagle, and I was told no. And it was one of those things where, it's what I wanted to fly more than anything, but I knew the rules, and I understood, so I made another selection, and I moved to another part of the country, and thought I had the worst possible timing in the world. And it wasn't until three months later when the policy changed that I figured out that my timing was actually much better than I initially thought.
1: And how great is it that you raised your hand at
0: that point in time to say I wanna do it? That was important to me. And my leadership at the time, when they said you finish number one, here are all the airplanes you cannot pick. You cannot pick a fighter, a bomber, special ops, anything combat related. And they said if you're going to ask for one, please have the professional courtesy to let us know. And I had to think long and hard about that decision. And I had a lot of unsolicited advice as to what I should do. Uh, Some people said, don't even think of asking for it. You'll be forever labeled as a troublemaker. Uh, There were people that said, hey, the law has changed. You need to ask for that airplane and walk out. Mm -hmm. And I had to find what was right for me. And so I talked to my family, they're very supportive. And I went to my leadership and I said, I have to ask for it because I know it's gonna change. I need to ask for what I want, and I understand they're gonna say no, and I'll make another choice.
1: And tell us about, you knew at that point in time being the first. History celebrates firsts, but what firsts know is that there are a lot of challenges being first. Tell us about
0: those challenges, and perhaps more importantly, how you overcame them. I had no interest in being the first. I just wanted to be a fighter pilot. To the Air Force's credit, senior leadership reached out to me and said, did you really wanna fly that Strike Eagle or were you trying to make a point? And I said, no, I absolutely wanna fly that airplane. And they said, well, if you do, you'll be the first and there'll be a lot of attention. And I said, well, I don't want any of the attention. I'd rather be number 43 or you know, one where no one was watching. But if those are the terms of the deal, I'll take it because I really wanted to go fly fighters. And so I did go in eyes wide open. Um, and realize that there was going to be a lot of attention. I think everyone has stress in their lives and you have to find that release and you have to find a way to kind of escape. You know, some people run. I love horseback riding. And so I would get on my horse and disappear for a couple hours after a rough, you know, day or you know, a stressful uh, and I'd ride for a while and then all was good again and and that was my escape. Horseback riding. That's right. What was the
1: reaction of when you realized I'm going to be first. You didn't want to be first but you wanted to do it and you're gonna pursue it. What was the reaction of your colleagues and what was the reaction of
0: your male colleagues in particular? The reaction varied. There was a lot of resistance in the fighter community because there had never been women in it. My peers, it wasn't as big of a deal because we had been in training together up until that point. And so for my peers, it was not a big change. They were used to having women in the training. However, when you'd get to the fighter squadron and the instructors, there was definitely some resistance. I always felt like I had to work harder than my male counterparts, and I just had to be better than them because everyone was watching, and I knew everyone was watching. What I found is that as I continued in my career, people were always calling to the previous base, like, how's she doing, and you know, kind of checking up, and so when people realized I was a good pilot, I was a good officer, I was hardworking, determined, it got easier with each move.
1: Has the culture of the Air Force changed since you were the first and served? And if so, what's changed?
0: I would say growing up in the fighter community, I have seen huge changes. Because obviously it was very male dominated and our culture wasn't where it needed to be. And there was a very concerted effort to ensure that commanders are responsible for creating that environment of dignity and respect because we didn't always have that in the past. And so our leadership recognized that. And to their credit, they made a huge effort to make sure that commanders understood it was their responsibility to create that culture. Yeah. So let's
1: talk about your time flying fighters. You've logged over 3,000 hours in the air, 300 of that in combat in Iraq and Afghanistan. Tell us about that experience.
0: You know, it's fascinating because I started flying the F-15E in 1993 and up through June of last year, I was still flying uh, the same airplanes, like the same tail numbers, but the airplanes had gotten so much more capable. You know, when I started flying, we didn't even have GPS, you know. (laughs) You know, we worked with an INS and and we had to update our systems and and the GPS and and the fighter dead link is amazing where all the airplanes will talk to each other and pass information to each other and then they give you a situational awareness display that paints that picture. The weapons have gotten so much smarter. You know, when I came in, we had laser-guided laser bombs, and now, you know, between the GPS weapons, and then you have dual-mode weapons, you have data-link weapons, it's a hugely increasing capability. Now, when you take off, when you light the afterburners, uh, it's a pretty awesome feeling, because uh, you accelerate very quickly down the runway. Um, what I found most rewarding is just the capabilities of the airplane. And I've flown it so much that just knowing what the airplane can do and and how maneuverable it is. One thing is you do have to think fast because uh, things are moving really, really fast. And so, say you're going nine or 10 miles a minute, uh, as you're going, you have to think well ahead of the airplane. You know, in a car, if you're going 60 miles an hour, you're moving one mile a minute. So if you accelerate that, that nine to 10 times, then that gives you an idea. It's just things move really, really fast. So you have to think, uh, ahead of the airplane. And then you have to be in good physical condition because as you pull Gs, it puts you know, strain on your body. And so say you weigh 100 pounds normally, if you're pulling nine Gs, then your body feels like you're weighing 900 pounds. And so it's, it's a lot of uh, force on the body, but uh, it's an incredible feeling.
1: Wow. And what's that feeling like when you're over Afghanistan or Iraq for some of the missions that you've <laughs> done?
0: Well, then your, your adrenaline goes up um, but quite honestly, the Air Force has very good training. Exercises such as Operation Red Flag out at Nellis Air Force Base, where the, real, the training is very realistic. It's very high stress, and it prepares you very well. That's not to say the first time you fly into enemy territory and know that people on the ground are trying to shoot you out of the air is not, uh, it doesn't make your heart increase in speed and uh, your adrenaline goes, but you fall back on that training because the training is so good and it's so realistic and it's so stressful that you're able to fall back on that training when you get into an actual combat situation.
1: You're obviously now commander of Air Force Recruiting Services. How do you motivate people and people to perform at their highest level, in particular under stressful situations?
0: I think it's important to give people the training and the resources and the environment you need to create that environment where people can achieve more than they think possible, where you can bring up your ideas, and all ideas are welcome, and you know that leadership cares. You know, people don't really care what you have to say until they know you care. Yeah. And one of the things I've found is when I went to the Weapons School, one of the training programs I went through, they really focused on leaders being humble, approachable, and credible. So you have to be credible. You have to be good at what you do but you also have to be humble, and you have to be approachable so people can can come ask you things, and uh, I think those are very important traits for leaders.
1: What are the strategies and techniques that you use and your team uses to recruit individuals to the Air Force, and in particular, women and girls who may wanna follow in your footsteps?
0: In the Air Force, we are very interested in having a diverse force, and it's a competitive advantage as far as I'm concerned. Because if I have people sitting around the table that think just like me, when faced with a problem, we'll come up to a solution really quick. But it'll probably be similar to if I just thought about it myself. But if I have a very diverse group of people around that table, and they bring different perspectives and different viewpoints, while it'll take longer to get to a solution, I guarantee it'll be a better solution. Because we'll have thought through so many other aspects of the problem. One other diversity thing is not just the demographics, but geographic. We are interested in geographic diversity. So as a military, we want to reflect the society that we protect. And so we put a lot of effort into ensuring that we are geographically diverse as well.
1: Your story in particular is so inspiring. Tell us about the Captain Marvel movie, how that came about, your involvement, and you actually worked on set with the crew, with Brie Larson. Take us through that experience.
0: It was more than a year ago, and the Public Affairs Office from the Pentagon reached out at Nellis. I was stationed at Nellis Air Force Base, and said, hey, can you assist with this movie? So we initially welcomed the team, producers, directors, and and we brought them to Nellis, and we talked through what it was like to be a female fighter pilot in the air force and it was interesting as we talked it was a lot of fun uh, there were definitely some stereotypes and a lot of great questions they had and it was a very good visit and then they asked can we come back and bring Brie Larson and I said sure that'd be great so she came out on their second visit out and I was really impressed by how interested Brie and the directors were in getting it right they wanted to have an accurate portrayal of a female Air Force fighter pilot. Bree spent a lot of time with me with other female uh, fighter pilots and just asked a bunch of questions and uh, we everything from, you know climbing up the ladder, carrying your helmet bag, when you're sitting in the cockpit, how you move in the cockpit, what the different things are, to what it was like to be an airman. And we shared our stories of, our experiences in the Air Force. And then so that it would be really realistic, we went ahead and put her in the backseat of an (laughs) F-16 so she could experience what it was like to fly in a high performance fighter aircraft.
1: What do you hope in particular that perhaps the Captain Marvel movie could be an instrument for individuals to learn more about obviously you and being a female fighter pilot, but around uh, the military in general?
0: I think that the Captain Marvel movie will help one of our initiatives, which is to increase diversity in our pilot force. Um, amazingly, 1993 was when it changed, but I'm always surprised when I run across people that say, oh, I didn't know women could fly fighters. And I'm like, it's been a while. This is like 1993, yeah. you know, <laughs> this isn't new. But I'm surprised by that. And so I think that that movie helps highlight that. We did a trailer that's showing in some of the theaters right before it, we call it Origin Story. but. It focuses on the origin story. That's the idea with the movie, but that's the idea with this little segment, and it shows a whole bunch of female Air Force pilots. And it's out on the ramp at Edwards Air Force Base, and it's a pretty neat uh, segment. It's like 30 seconds long, but it's a little commercial, but it just exposes people that, hey, there are all these opportunities available to you. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times, if we can engage and just tell people, and if you see someone, that is doing something you want to do, then you go, hey, I can do that. Yeah. You know, it's an example for you.
1: General Levitt, thank you. Thank you very, very much. We're honored to have had you here. Thank you. Thank you.
2: This podcast was recorded on March 26, 2019. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part or disclosed by any recipient to any other person. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the recipient. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty, express or implied, as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed.